Hi, this is 180 Degrees, a new series about the changes we all need to make for a clean energy future. We'll be looking at the choices we make every day in our homes and our businesses, with transport, technology and in our communities and as individuals. So what is a sustainable home? And what do we need to do to make our houses more efficient and more comfortable? I see it out there. I still see people coming up to me at exhibitions and trade fairs and they're, what about this piece of equipment? There's no, they've no real understanding of the very basics of what makes a sustainable home. And actually, it's quite simple. It is about generating heat in the most efficient way that you can um, and then keeping it in. How do our decisions today affect our future? I think the decisions that people make between now and 2050, they're going to be different, but they're going to be in an order that suits them best. So it's not appropriate for everyone to go out tomorrow and buy an electric vehicle. One, they're not available and two, we can't all afford it. So deciding, well, what can I change today that means I can buy an electric car the next time I buy a car? But these decisions are not always easy to make. When they see a sizable amount of their money going towards energy upgrades where they can't see it tangibly, like it's behind a wall, um, people can get a little bit upset, you know. And in the business world, many companies are confused as to what to do. In the smaller business space, smaller public bodies, the issue is they don't know what things are credible or not. They don't really know if I put a PV system on my roof, is that is, is that making a big step in the right direction or is that making a tiny step or is it doing anything? I mean, if you're a cement company and you put PV in your head office, yeah, it looks great, but you're burning tons of tires and all sorts of reclaimed waste to create your product. Our energy future is all about choices. Choices we can make on an individual level. I'll move right to the big companies which have in their marketing departments sold us on the idea that we can't live without plastic bottles of water. That didn't happen because of something changing in our lives. That happened to us through marketing from big companies. And like I encounter people, you know, that are just uh, overwhelmed by the issue and almost don't want to talk about it. Then people are sort of overcome by guilt and then others don't know what to do. So if you're interested in the changes we all need to make for a better future, the first episode of 180 Degrees comes out on September the 26th. We hope you can join us. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more, head to seai.ie forward slash podcast. Season three of the Irish Passport podcast is sponsored by BiddyMurphy.com, the online shop where you can find authentic Irish gifts and products made by craftspeople on the island of Ireland. Head on over to BiddyMurphy.com now to see their full range of fantastic products. Hello, welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you welcome Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Tim, before we start into this episode, we've got some really exciting news to announce. We're going to be hosting two new live shows this autumn. Yes, indeed. Two of them. Two new live shows. I don't know how we're going to manage it, Naomi. Uh, The first show will be on October 12th, a very short time away, uh, in the Irish Cultural Centre in Paris, where we did our last show, actually. And we'll be speaking there about reinventing Ireland for the future. We'll have guests including Northern Ireland Green Party leader Claire Bailey, 
uh, author Sarah Maria Griffin, and political scientist David Farrell, who was a leading figure in our famous Citizens' Assembly. And our second show is also pretty special. For the first time, we will be hosting the show live from Dublin, my hometown, alongside our great friends over at the Motherfuckler podcast. Tickets for that will go on sale on the website of the Dublin Podcast Festival. So go ahead and get them when you can. Hopefully, we'll see lots of you there. But anyway, let's get down to the episode, Naomi. I have risked absolutely everything. Every ounce of money I had went into building this business. Being my shoes were actually your whole livelihood is built around a business that has a strong European influence, that you've taken a risk to provide jobs, to try and make Belfast a better place than it was when I grew up. I appreciate that governments don't want to panic people, but we are six weeks out. My house is less than a mile from the border. Who is actually listening to Northern Ireland? I mean, really? Welcome back to the second instalment of our two-part episode, taking a look at where Ireland and Northern Ireland stand, just a few weeks out from a potential no-deal Brexit or some kind of resolution one way or another. We're going to focus on one area in which uncertainty around Brexit has been reigning since the vote itself. And that is, of course, just people's basic livelihoods. Like, what is a no-deal Brexit going to do to businesses on the island of Ireland? And what, if anything, can individuals who are vulnerable to this situation do to mitigate the impact of no-deal on their lives? Uh, let's just break down the economic significance of a no-deal Brexit on each side of the Irish border. So, uh, to begin, this summer, the Irish Central Bank announced that a no-deal Brexit could cost 100,000 jobs in the Republic of Ireland. That includes, by the way, a predicted 34,000 fewer jobs just by the end of next year. These are extraordinary numbers in a country like Ireland that only has a few million people, and which is already struggling with austerity and the legacy of recent uh, mass emigration. So if a deal can be reached, that central bank predicts an economic expansion of 4.1% in Ireland in 2020. Uh, But if there is a no deal, that figure of economic expansion drops down to 0.7%. So, Naomi, can you maybe explain just the basic reasons behind this? Like, why would the economy in the Irish Republic be hit this hard by something that is happening in a neighbouring jurisdiction? Sure. And just to link back on those figures, I've seen much, much more dire predictions than that. These are forecasts, so people don't just don't know really how to predict an unforeseen event, but it could be extremely serious. It all depends on the circumstances. But the reason why Ireland is so vulnerable to this uh, is because we just have really deep links to the island of Britain and to Northern Ireland. The th- strength of trade links between countries is usually a function of proximity because it's just easier to buy and sell products to the countries that are immediately around you. Uh, it's pretty logical. There's especially intricate links with Northern Ireland because of the, you know, it's an island and it's one which has had an open border for many years now. Um, And there's blending of communities and industries across that border. There really are, particularly in agriculture, cross-border. That's how they exist in their reality. And so that means what's bad for the Republic will have bad effects on the North and vice versa. And it's also the same between Britain and the island of Arden. So, you know, there's contagion between the economies. If investment stops in one, the effects will be felt in the other and so on. A sudden disruption, like no deal, a sudden tearing up of all the legal basis that everyone's been trading on, you know, that's been built over since the, up since the 1970s. Something that disrupted would have catastrophic effects 
these are, you know, very heavy, very complex trade networks that have been built up over decades and in some cases over centuries. And that's why from the very beginning, the Irish government has treated Brexit as something like a national emergency. It was preparing for it as though for an emergency since 2015, even before the referendum was even called. So in many ways, it was actually better prepared than Britain itself because it treated this as such a a real threat from the very beginning. Just to put it in perspective, you know, Ireland would be hit the very worst of all countries apart from the UK itself. And the next worst hit country is forecast to be the Netherlands, also because of physical proximity and strong trade ties, because of course the Netherlands is very physically close to Britain. You mentioned in our previous episode uh, that the Irish government is in a bit of a bind uh, when it comes to this. And there's a pretty weird dynamic going on, in some sectors maybe, between the Irish electorate and the government over this. You know, as far as I can see, like the current Fine Gael government are often being portrayed as villains, you know, when it comes to the poor and when it comes to social services. They've been blamed for not addressing the housing crisis, for instance, and rising homelessness and for generally maintaining pretty harsh austerity politics and you know even Leo Varadkar is very unpopular in lots of circles but when it comes to Brexit there is still this really significant support from among the public and I don't think that's really being understood in the British media. What you see there portrayed a lot is that the threat of economic ruin in Ireland will force the Irish government to buckle at some point or could and accept some kind of, I don't know, ludicrous capitulation to Westminster's whims of the day. You know, a really striking example of that is just the amount of times that we've heard kind of being suggested in a, in a blasé manner that Ireland could just leave the EU and join the UK in order to protect its economy. But I suppose I'm right in saying, if anything, the threat of economic disaster is only driving Ireland closer to the EU and making it more resolutely tied to the single market, right? Well, there's a lot of questions there. There's a lot of things that could be addressed. Um, So, yes, in some ways, this whole process has driven Ireland closer to the EU because it's been on the side of the negotiations along with the rest of the EU27. And, you know, there's very strong solidarity there. There's been building of relationships. And also because Britain has kind of disgraced itself, to be honest, internationally. It's really burnt a lot of bridges, um, even with its closest friends in Europe. These, the You know, the ties that were enjoyed are, are very, very strained. That goes for the Dutch. It also goes for the Irish. Really, relations were on a huge high prior to Brexit. And the kind of inconsistency, I suppose, um, from Westminster and the lack of serious focus on this issue, the clinging to things that aren't real, that's really burnt bridges, particularly when the stakes are so high for neighboring countries. Um, and that, you know, that's how it happened over the last, I would say, year and a half more than anything. Before that, there was still quite a lot of hope. When it comes to, you know, the, the Irish politics and how this all plays into Irish politics, of course, there is, a, you know, a view of Fine Gael from the left that they're very economically right wing, but they are quite tame by international standards. They're arguably pretty centrist when it comes to both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. They kind of waver about on the spectrum of left to right, depending really on the electoral circumstances. And they both don't have any problem spending money if it will win them votes. So they tend to leave a lot of spending for when they can announce it close to election time, which is quite cynical and also leads to some kind of erratic and not always very rational decisions. But yeah, then when it comes to why would Ireland prioritise its relationship with the EU and over its relations with the UK, which as we've said are hugely important, 
is because its trade with the single market is much, much bigger. And it's also the whole foundation of the modern Irish economy. Ideas that Ireland is massively dependent on the UK are probably based in old stereotypes that haven't been true since the 1970s. You know, that Ireland's kind of the breadbasket for Britain. It, it was once true, but basically membership of the EU freed Ireland from that and became a rich place. It went from being one of the poorest countries to becoming one of the wealthiest countries in the EU and now the fastest growing for quite some time. And now the trade with the single market uh, is far greater than the, the, the trade with the UK. So, you know, the ideal situation for Dublin is that both routes remain open. You know, it can keep trading with the UK just like now and also with the EU27. That's why it's been saying just please don't Brexit or if you do Brexit, have a really soft one. Um, it, it wants both. But if it's forced to choose, it's going to go for remaining part of the single market. It's just absolutely fundamental for, for the Irish economy. In terms of the domestic politics, there's close to 100% cross-party support for that position, not for buckling. There's near unity across the doll, and that goes even for Sinn Féin, which are usually at Finnegale's throats on most matters. Yeah, right. So uh, it's easy to see, I suppose, why there would be a strong and very logical support among the public right now before <laughs> before Brexit Day, um, not to buckle and to, to stick with the EU at all costs. But what about when this actually happens? What about when no deal brings out those disastrous scenarios uh, that you were talking about earlier? You know, surely the public is going to change its tune. Surely it's going to be furious at the government for not having done more to do something that would keep uh, Ireland out of this situation. Yeah, maybe. I mean, obviously, people could be very angry if there are terrible consequences. Um, Public opinion is, of course, very hard to predict. For now, you know, there is no public appetite for Ireland, for the the Irish government to back down, either from political rivals or, or from the public. But it's also important to understand the rationale of the Irish government in maintaining its uh, its position and not buckling. So essentially, in the case of a no-deal scenario, it would face really difficult decisions because it would have to protect the integrity of the single market and that means checking goods somewhere. So it has to figure out how to, how to do that on the border and we all know the difficulties of that, the political sensitivities and the sheer impracticality of it. So that's a really difficult decision that Dublin doesn't even want to discuss. It doesn't want to even think about it, to be honest. But there's this misconception that no deal is a permanent uh, situation. It probably isn't. It's probably temporary. So the consequences would be so terrible for the UK that it's most people expect they wouldn't be able to uh, sustain them for very long. Because after all, it's only supported by a, a small minority. Um, it, it doesn't have a minor- It has the majority of parliament is against it, and it's not supported by a majority of the public. So. If they face terrible consequences from from doing it, there will probably be a swell of momentum to stop. And if they ever want to normalise trade with the EU, they have to come right back to the negotiating table where Ireland and the rest of the EU will be waiting with the backstop again. So the question is like, okay, either we can buckle now and say to Westminster, okay, sure, you know, we're we're very frightened of this no deal thing and we'll we'll accept whatever unicorn uh, deal. Remember, nothing practical has been proposed by the UK. Whatever deal that we don't really believe in, but that you you say will work. Okay, we'll give in and we'll just uh, we'll take your word for it. And then that would be a permanent settlement forever. There's no there's no changing that. Or you put up with this disastrous thing that no one wants, that, but that will be temporary. 
And then afterwards, Ireland thinks, you know, they're just going to have to accept the, the backstop anyway or something like it because there, there just aren't other solutions. Right. That's a really interesting uh, point, actually. And I, I suppose it brings into the fray the question of just how long it would might take after a potential no deal for the UK to come back to the table and how much damage might be done in the meantime. And that, that is something that uh, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar hinted at in um, his speech when Boris Johnson visited Dublin uh, a while back. But if no deal is temporary, if it's not the end, and if it is, let's say, only the beginning of a whole new phase of negotiations about essentially the same stuff again, <laughs> Naomi, like... Is this ever going to end? <laughs> Is there a foreseeable endpoint to Brexit? I mean, it will go on for years. The negotiations will go on for years. They might not occupy the headlines for years because once the really high stake stuff is agreed, there's no reason for them to. So if they just agreed to the deal, let's say, then you know we probably wouldn't hear that much about it after October 31st. It would only be of interest to people who are really, really interested in like trade deals and stuff like that. Um, but the reason why it's occupying all of our time right now is because there's this potential for a disaster that could affect everybody's lives. So we're all talking about it. So, you know, it will go on for years. It depends on how chaotically it's managed, how long it begin, it continues to occupy everybody's minds. You know, as, as soon as everyone comes together to just sort it out, then it should recede from from importance and, you know, subject of alarm and it should recede, you know, stop worrying everybody so much. We, we can dream. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's funny, like, to talk about this, like, when I'm saying that, you know, it's this topic of chaos that's occupying everyone's lives. It, it's quite interesting. Something I noticed when I've been out reporting is that there's, when I when I interview people or, or meet people, there's this real sense of, like, bonding through common experience in the way that Brexit has turned our lives upside down. So like, I've just been so flat out for the last few weeks working on this that, you know, my life is really in chaos. Like I've, I've run out of clean clothes. I'm traveling all the time and then just coming back and like dumping my stuff and not even having time to unpack it. And <laughs> I'm also just like permanently distracted and continually racing for imminent deadlines. So like, you know, I'm not focusing on the things that I'm doing. So for example, this morning, I left the house. And but in the afternoon, I happened to catch sight of myself in the mirror, and I had put makeup on only one eye. <laughs> so <laughs> good luck. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't, you know, punk. intending the David Bowie, you know, kind of look. But um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, the people I meet on who are who are also working on Brexit have similar kind of stories. So I met the 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 academic Katie Hayward in in Belfast and you know it was kind we of this like podcast before, right? Yeah, she's she's brilliant and we you know we had this kind of like yeah, sense of like solidarity over the ways in which our lives were turned upside down. Like she's she's gone from studying something, working on something that was considered this absolute boring niche interest that had, you know, th no one was working on. It was like this kind of remote Siberia of academic research, which was the Irish border, from being inundated by media requests and flown on the, uh, internationally to speak about it. Yeah, I, do, I don't know how people will be able to keep it up. Like, I absolutely know what you're talking about. Uh, for new listeners, I, I live in France. And it has affected so many strange things in the university I work in. Like, uh, one of my colleagues wanted br to bring students uh, to London in a few weeks' time, and she had totally forgotten, you know, that they might need visas or something, that it might be impossible for her to do this. Like, suddenly that's cancelled. Erasmus students' funding is cancelled. Things like this are, you know, Erasmus students who are 
in the UK at the moment don't know are they actually going to get funding in the end you know but then just British people around me are I don't I don't think I know one person one UK citizen who hasn't experienced some kind of really quite serious adverse effect from one aspect of this or another like I know people like who have lost half their savings because of the plummeting exchange rate you know people who might live in both countries um, people with serious health concerns who are you know actively long-term planning on how they are going to be able to stockpile essential medicine and where they're going to get it from like really serious stuff which seems to be happening everywhere yeah it's worth reminding everybody that this didn't need to happen this was entirely voluntary and a lot of this chaos and is is merely due to the failure of politicians to agree. This is because we're still in uncertainty and because they haven't because they were they're holding out on a deal. Tim, I remember you mentioning there was an official letter that informed UK citizens and and France about their their work co- contracts being cancelled in the event of a no deal. Yeah, actually, yeah, and that you know that perfectly illustrates what you were just saying there. Yeah, th- this really happened sometime before the last deadline in March. Uh, the French government sent out an email to certain sections of the civil service, uh, declaring that in the event of a no deal that all UK citizens in permanent jobs, and these would be jobs for life that they would have thought that they were secure in, all these people would have those jobs terminated automatically the day after Brexit because those contracts were never designed uh, to be compatible with no deal and no deal didn't offer anything in its place. Um, Now, that was rectified, thankfully, some time later and UK citizens, just the UK citizens who are already employed in the sector, um, they were eventually assured that they could keep their jobs. But, you know, God knows how many other similar and unexpected byproducts like this might come crawling out of the woodwork on the actual day of a no deal. This is terrifying people, obviously. It's already had an effect in terms of discouraging people to apply for things because of the uncertainty or to move to places. And I heard that in Northern Ireland from businesses and about workplaces, that there's a big drop in uh, citizens from around the EU in particular that would have otherwise be, have been taking up jobs there. Mm, right. So, so all these issues, of course, affect people's livelihoods really profoundly. For countless businesses, of course, big and small, the uncertainty has been 100% negative, really, with no upside at all uh, since Brexit Day. Uh, let's hear a few of those stories now. This is Orla Smith. Uh, Orla worked as a lawyer in Denmark, and she loved the cafe culture there so much that she was inspired to come home to Belfast, and she set up a Nordic-style cafe there herself. Uh, The business was a a massive success. It it thrived and it it expanded until the Brexit vote, which uh, has already introduced an uncertainty that has stopped plans for Orla to open further outlets, and that has had serious implications for her costs to pay for coffee and food that might come in after the D-Day. Let's hear from Orla. My name's Orla Smith. Um, I'm from Belfast and I own Cafe O and we have three coffee shops in Belfast. I mean, I always laugh. I, I said to people, I want to open a Danish coffee shop next door to an orange hall on the Ormer Road and people were like, you're crazy. <laughs> um, so thankfully, um, I was crazy, but it's worked. It's... I suppose I would say we're sort of inspired by Copenhagen made in Belfast, so it's a little bit of the the cultures combined. Now, things might be about to change a lot here in terms of the business circumstances, Mm -hmm. I suppose. Can you tell me what effect Brexit will have on your business? Let's be brutally honest, Brexit had an immediate effect on my business because as soon as the vote went that way, Sterling hasn't recovered since. Um, I import in Danish Crohn's, so um, not even forthcoming straight away, my business was hit probably by a 13% um, increase in costs um, from the exchange rate. Now, let, don't get me wrong, you know, it wasn't 
enough of a price hike then to impact my business in a drastic sense but did it take money away from from paying things absolutely because you're you know if you're paying more for something you're earning less obviously the cost I'm now in a position that I've I've had three years to try and buffer that um, and hopefully it can't get any worse I just keep thinking sterling can't get any worse so it just costs you much more to buy in the beans that are both roasted in Copenhagen yeah because I'm paying Danish krones which is an exceedingly stable currency Um, and as we know sterling has not been stable since this has happened so so the journey usually starts in Copenhagen it goes from Copenhagen to um, the Netherlands it goes from Netherlands to England and then it goes from England to either direct to Belfast or Dublin Belfast so I'm in and out of EUs potentially three times now currently that takes three to four days what's that going to look like come Brexit nobody can tell me you know I'm a small business I am complete small fry to the powers that be if big businesses aren't sure exactly how this is going to work how, how, how am I supposed to right I think the famous yellow hammer document says as a base case scenario, oh, yeah, there they're will looking be, at yeah. two days yeah. at Dover, two days delay. What would two days, that's just at one border crossing, obviously. What would two days delay at Dover mean for, or... Well, can I be honest, I don't believe that it would just be two days yeah. <laughs> because there are times I am currently hit by delays in Channel Tunnel for, for numerous, for, for traffic issues, etc. at the minute. And that's mm. before we've even hit Brexit. So best case scenario, my coffee takes three days. Worst case at the mar- scenario, it takes a week. But if you're telling me worst case scenario is going to take a week and two days, I don't actually believe you. I think worst case scenario, it could be a not much longer than that. Um, well, it's impacting your fr- it's impacting the quality of your products straight mm. away. It also makes ordering really difficult because, I mean, I mean, I'm not talking about bringing a couple of kilos in. I'm talking about five to 600 kilos of coffee a month being shipped in fortnightly I, I manage that so tightly so that I'm never sitting with a product that isn't at its absolute best and I will manage that down and I'm talking to down to the last 30 40 kilos to ensure the quality of my product yeah. and with those potential delays I, I'm just concerned that you can't actually ever go that tight and then that impacts quality this you know is just an added stress and I mean it's not just my coffee I mean my other main food supplier is based in Monaghan so again you're over the border they deliver every day the WTO rules they would come into place in a no deal scenario that's what I've been advised and for coffee it would be 7.5% yeah on roasted coffee coming in okay and do do you know about for the other products that you're buying no yeah and what would that mean for you? Do you think that the business would remain viable or would it just become extremely Oh, I mean, expensive? I think I'm lucky. I'm saying it can remain viable. I've been here five and a half years now. But if I was starting out, that's a completely different ballgame. And, and I think that's what's unfair about it too. Will I be able to absorb a seven and a half percent increase for a short period of time, but not long term? You know, because that impacts your, you know, your staffing levels, your everything. So again, ultimately, you will have to look at what you pay what the consumer pays um so i mean i don't think it's a shock to anybody that in an deal brexit food etc is going to get more expensive the only reason i've i've brought a danish coffee you know danish inspired coffee brand to belfast is because i worked in in europe um freely no issues whatsoever because of that opportunity i've brought that into belfast we're employing 29 people we're putting money back in the economy and paying ridiculous fat like anybody in hospitality in northern ireland is rates, rent, you know, the amount of money we're putting back into the economy and yet no support whatsoever with regards even um, somebody lobbying on our behalf because it's so inept, our politicians here, we've no storming yet, you know, they're getting a two and a half year paid sabbatical currently. I have risked absolutely everything. Every ounce of money I had went into building this business um, and I'm very lucky it's going well, but I'm very conscious there's 29 people's jobs are part of this business and I have an obligation to them and I just feel like who is having the obligation to us? 
you know, to support us, you know, and obviously a lot of our staff are European too, maybe 30%. So I just find that, I find it a little bit frustrating is the polite term when I hear all these people on and, you know, and talking in their pinstripe suits about, you know, it's an undemocratic backstop. It's, you know, not going to have an effect. No deal is no bother. And I just said, well, we'll be in my shoes, you know, where actually your whole livelihood is built around a business that has a strong European influence, that you've taken a risk to provide jobs to try and make Belfast a better place than it was when I grew up. And it just all seems to be flying in the wind at the minute that nobody seems to be fighting our corner. And that, I find that exceedingly frustrating. Have you put any kind of contingency plans in place or anything? Well, I, I mean, I've been very honest about this before. Um, I've put a halt on expansion because I'm not sure what's happening. So to have a buffer there that, you know, if something, you know, critical or awful happens, that we have that security there. But I'm very lucky to be able to do that. And I know that last year I could have potentially expanded done something different up in another unit but I thought Orla hang on this Brexit thing you just don't know um, and I think that's the stagnation that I mean I can't be the only business who's holding on for some sort of buffer in case something critical happens rather than actually investing in my own city growing my business which ultimately puts more money in the economy what I hope if anything comes out of Brexit is that there is a mobilisation in a political way in Northern Ireland that people do start picking our politicians based on real politics so all of these businesses are expecting their costs to go up and as a result they will have to make savings somewhere else and that often is going to mean layoffs. As we mentioned earlier, the Irish Central Bank predicts a cost of 100,000 jobs in the Republic but this gets considerably bleaker when you come into the context of Northern Ireland. The Northern Irish Civil Service estimates that at least 40,000 people would lose their jobs in the case of a no-deal Brexit. Now, in 2018, the Northern Ireland Statistics and Research Agency estimated that Northern Ireland's working population was only 817,000. So a loss of 40,000 jobs from that number would be simply catastrophic. Remember, apart from just the simple devastation that a job loss can bring to a family, this has big implications for the state and its ability to provide for people. When you have job losses, the amount of taxes goes down. Simultaneously, you have a surge in people needing unemployment support from the state. So what happens? You have a big funding crunch and the state runs out of money. You know, this is a disastrous prospect, particularly in a place like Northern Ireland, which is hugely dependent on state money and has some of the deepest pockets of deprivation in the whole of the United Kingdom. Let's hear now from a man who is wrestling with the difficult prospect of letting staff go in the months to come. My name is John McAreevy. Uh, I'm the financial director of a family-owned business called Clearhill. We operate coin-operated machinery in shopping centres and the grocery sector throughout the UK and Ireland. Um, well what, you young people. what effects so far has the vote result had on your business? Um, well, it has the effect of paralyzing our investments in Greater Britain. Uh, between 2012 and 2016, we invested £3 million uh, throughout the Great Britain uh, shopping centre sector through machinery, through service infrastructure. Uh, from 2016, uh, we've probably invested around 10% of that level uh, to now. Um, we can't invest further because we don't know what impact Brexit is going to deliver on the economy. Um, there is plenty of opportunity, but if the economy shrinks, then we're not going to be able to sustain that level of business. So we just have to sit tight uh, and wait 
do we know what future is out there for us? If we have to have increased administration, increased tariffs, it's going to be absolutely uh, devastating because it's going to impact. Our, well, obviously, it's going to impact our bottom line, uh, but it may it may impact again jobs. You know, um, if we have to make cutbacks or if we can't grow, uh, then we're not going to be able to produce more jobs. So it's very, very damaging, very frightening. Uh, we'll have to stop this because nothing else will do. It's deeply concerning to hear that, and particularly considering that it's estimated that there will be steep rises in the cost of ordinary household products in the case of a no deal. And of course, while small business owners are the backbone of the Northern Irish economy, this is something that's concerning even the biggest companies as well. So they have more of a cushion and they also have more resources to be able to plan and prepare for all this. They're able to put staff on figuring out what exactly they need to do, unlike small businesses, which can't do that. But even the big businesses are facing difficult decisions all the same and their costs going up. And when it comes to businesses that are really international, they also have the option of just relocating their business elsewhere. And there's already indications that investment into Northern Ireland has dropped significantly due to the uncertainty. So let's hear this side of the story from one of Northern Ireland's biggest companies, which is involved actually in the iconic industry of shipbuilding, which has been so important there. I'm Deborah Lochran. I'm the former president of Newry Chamber of Commerce, and I'm also head of communications for MJM Group in Newry. That's one of the biggest businesses in Northern Ireland, is that correct? Yes, so MJM Group has MJM Marine, MyVan and Topglass, which are three major manufacturers in Northern Ireland. So myself and a number of colleagues have established a a Brexit committee and obviously we're we're taking cognizance of what is going on and watching all of the the, the developments and trying to talk to as many people as we possibly can about our views and and, and our issues and our concerns that we have, particularly around a no-deal Brexit. But we're not getting, we're getting back rhetoric. We're not getting back any cold hard facts. We're sitting in a situation now, as every business is in Northern Ireland, with no facts as to what business will look like on the 1st of November, no clarity, no certainty. So it's very, very difficult for businesses to have a pipeline for next year when we don't know what's happening. So for us, the biggest issue is the lack of certainty. And then if you look at the other sort of subsidiary issues coming out of that is delays. Delays would have a major impact on on our business because we ship all of our product out of Northern Ireland. So we need to get that product out on time to each of our projects that we're working on around the world. And also with regard to people, because we rely on a a very valuable EU um, workforce to support our business and help deliver our business. And those people need certainty and those people need to know that they're welcome and and that they're a very valuable part of the Northern Ireland economy. And have you met a sympathetic ear from politicians from London or what's the reaction? Oh, yes, they're all nodding and and, uh, and sort of shaking their heads and saying yes. But I mean, they're not actually acting on it. So who is actually listening to Northern Ireland? I mean, really what we're trying to get across the, the view is that this is not... This is not anti-DUP, but we're trying to get across the, the, the view that the DUP are not representing the views of the business community in Northern Ireland. And ironically, for many years, you know, I particularly felt, while I don't agree with all of their politics, I felt that they were the party of business in Northern Ireland. And the, the, the dynamic has completely shifted now and they're not representing the business community at all. And the concern that we have is that they're the only voice in Westminster at the moment. And what would a no deal actually mean for you, for the business you work We don't know. I mean, in reality, we can do all the preparation that that we want. But for example, we as a large business can be very prepared. But if our small supplier that we do business with locally or here in Northern Ireland 
isn't isn't prepared and isn't able to meet an order that we put with them, that could scupper our business. So it's a very, very difficult. It has a knock-on effect right across the, the economy. We try to buy local and are very committed to Northern Ireland PLC. But if we have to go out and buy our product elsewhere, we are not supporting the Northern Ireland community and we're not supporting that smaller business that maybe relies on us because we can't rely on them potentially to deliver with a no-deal Brexit. I thought it was so interesting to hear how the DUP is no longer seen as the party of business and, you know, where it would have been before. And it's something that I have heard from several people. Like previously, it was the unionists who kind of held the economically pragmatic high ground. But the DUP has totally ceded and abandoned that and alienated a lot of the business and farming classes. Mm, Absolutely right. And I suppose when those businesses are talking about delays in their produce and things like that, they're really talking about several borders uh, altogether where there could be jams. Um, there could be uh, jams at uh, Calais in France, to Dover, at central crossing points for goods between the UK and the continent, at all international ports and airports, and of course potentially between either Northern Ireland and the island of Great Britain, or on the Irish border, or on both, uh, depending on how this all plays out. Um, that notion of checks on the border across the island of Ireland is of course deeply alarming, given the impracticality of it, and the risk that it would pose to the economy and peace. Uh, Let's hear from someone who remembers just how bad things were when the border was hard and was visible. This is Damien McGinty, a resident of South Armagh, who was driven into activism as part of the group Border Communities Against Brexit by his fears of a return to the past. My name's Damien McGinty. I'm with the campaign group Border Communities Against Brexit. Just an ordinary person, I work and run the local post office in the next village. I'm a part-time farmer, I'm a, a dad to four small children, and I think Brexit's an, a complete disaster for us. That's why I got involved in this campaign. My house is uh, less than a mile from the border. My wife is from the south. I grew up, I was a teenager when the, the peace process was happening, when the ceasefire was called. It was a very militarised place. It was a very difficult place to grow up. There were watchtowers on all the hills, you know, just where I live. You know, I woke up in the morning and opened my, my curtain and it was a huge watchtower just in the hill opposite, where, where, in the bedroom where I, that, I, that I slept in. You know, there were constant military patrols. It, it was very difficult and, and tough and it was an area that got a bad name globally. Now, I don't think we'll ever go back to that, but, you know, there will have to be a border of some kind. We realise that at the beginning of this whole Brexit process, that's an absolute disaster for us. Any kind of border checks will unfortunately provoke attack. And it's the snowball effect that that will will have, apart from the economic damage and the job losses. The most important thing is our peace. Now, I grew up with the sound of helicopters. And I could today identify a helicopter without even looking up in the sky. We have peace. You know, all we hear now is birds and cars and the normal things that everybody should hear. And absolutely, we absolutely never want to go back to that or anything even close to it. We have compromised and we support the withdrawal agreement and the backstop. It isn't perfect. And that's something that's never maybe talked about enough that while the backstop allows us to be in the customs union, we're only in parts of the single market. Just I'm a farmer. There are thousands of farmers in, in Northern Ireland. It's a small farming based economy. Like We are out of the common agricultural policy which will mean a 70% cut in payments. We're out of fishermen, we're out of common fisheries. The financial services sector will have difficulty trading across the island because that is not in the backstop. 
But we realise it's a compromise. And, you know, Northern Ireland in the withdrawal agreement has unfettered access to the UK market. So I fail to understand why society here can't support the backstop as, as being that compromise. What would happen in the event of a no deal? There will have to be border infrastructure. I don't believe you'll see it on day one. But from the contact that we have in the Commission, they are saying to the Irish government clearly that there'll have to be a border within weeks, if not days. They cannot risk the integrity of the single market. That is at the core of the EU and European project. We have 300 border crossings. We have more border crossings in Ireland than there are on the entire eastern border of the European Union. So for us in border communities, that would obviously mean that those roads would be closed because there isn't the manpower to be able to check every vehicle or check people. So they'll, they'll channel people through big checks. One of our members um, in Fermanagh, John Sheridan, John's a farmer. His land runs right to the border. The border and part of his farm is, is the boundary of his farm. John's from the English tradition. You know, it has been difficult for people in the unionist tradition to speak out against Brexit because a lot of unionists are opposed to the backstop. Maybe not necessarily um, they're that opposed to, to remaining, but they, they, they believe this notion of, of being separated from the rest of the UK. And John has been one of our most ardent campaigners. And um, We have a pharmacist in Donegal, uh, lives in Remelton. Um, he actually met the French ambassador this week with other members of border communities. And he will tell anybody that listens that medicines are, that, that are brought into Ireland are brought onto the island and they're brought by people from the uh, companies in the UK who have a contract for the whole of the UK and Ireland. There's a huge risk to health and getting those medicines onto the island. So we're a very diverse group of people and we have people from the campaign group from Carlingford to Derry on both sides of the border. And probably 60 or 70% of the, of the media and the journalists that we have spoken to have been European. There's been an enormous interest from European politicians. And what that has done, it has educated the European audience very well as to the specific issues on the Irish border. And the solidarity has been fabulous. And, and we said to the French ambassador this week, and I'm going to Brussels next week, that we need Europe to stay solid. If there's a crash, that what the Taoiseach said to Boris Johnson last week, that Europe needs to stay united, Britain will come back to the negotiating table. And at that point, Europe needs to say, number one, we need an Irish backstop. Number two, we need EU citizens' rights protected and the divorce bill paid. We may go through a turbulent period for a while, but when Britain comes back to the negotiating table, we need to make sure that Europe stays on that page. And I'll be bringing that message to Giver Hofstad and the Article 50 team the week after next. I love that detail from Damien of being able to identify helicopters merely from that sound. That, you know, that really brings home the reality of what militarization meant for people and, you know, the, the, the stakes that there are for people's lives and quality of life here, which I feel is very much perhaps not appreciated in Britain. I'm also interested to hear the point of view of our next interviewee, Katrina Mullen. So Katrina is a cross-border specialist. She's worked in cross-border integration for many years, including in the health service. And she had a really interesting point of view, I thought. Let's hear from Katrina. My name's Katrina Mullen. I'm a specialist in cross-border collaboration. I live about a mile from the border. I live in a household where one person um, works in the European Union and commutes across the border every day. So we have a dual currency household. 
so half the, the income is sterling, half is euros. There are many, many, many other families like that. Um, I cross the border regularly, depending on where I'm going. Um, I can cross the border three or four times in a day. It's very much um, in my own life always been a feature because as a child growing up here with one parent from the Republic of Ireland, we travelled across the border an awful lot. So I grew up between the two places in a way. Um, but I think that's very typical of people who are native to border regions. There's a, a sense of living between two worlds. The reopening of roads that were closed meant a huge difference to communities that would have been very physically close together but potentially cut off from each other during the Troubles. For me, it has opened up the opportunity to travel roads that we couldn't drive on when I was growing up. The disappearance of border checkpoints has meant, in a way, a rediscovery of the place that you came from and getting to know it again in a different way. I would imagine that the biggest concerns around this will be disruption to basic um, arrangements for public health and safety. There are many, many scenarios that have been envisaged and we assume there is some kind of planning going on. There has been very little communication with the public about what exactly those arrangements are. And I appreciate that governments don't want to panic people, but we are six weeks out from this potentially happening. And the public really don't know. There is a sense of strain where people are maybe utilising mindsets that they thought they would never have to use again, which is the sense of maintaining normality, bringing children to school, um, just continuing as normal when you have a sense of the instability. Um, so that's very difficult for people. I think also there's a kind of a cultural distress, which is to do with people's sense of citizenship. And I don't think you can measure the immediate, the immediate effects of that kind of thing, but it, it just leads to a change in dynamics at a time when we don't need animosity. I really fail to see how anyone in Northern Ireland can support a hard Brexit, knowing what the implications will be for the population here and for the economy and for an, a society that is trying to emerge from conflict, a society that is trying to deal with the economic effect of decades of underinvestment. I fail to comprehend why people would be prepared to put their population through that. I think people need to understand borders historically. There were places where there was a fluidity, where there's a creativity, people's ability to mediate and understand the interface between systems is a huge asset and people in Northern Ireland have that. And I think it's important for people here um, and their levels of anxiety to understand that while no one wants a hard Brexit, there are other forms of Brexit and I think that's important as well. We have to be able to see our way through this one way or the other. I think Northern Ireland could be a hugely productive trading post. If you look historically at some of the most successful trading zones in the world, they're on borders, where you have that sort of two-way access in and out of currency markets, in and out of regulated markets, you have a potential massive advantage. Northern Ireland could be the Hong Kong of Western Europe. Probably not a good example to use these days, but you know what I mean. Um, as an interface between the UK and the European Union, um, Northern Ireland could be a huge asset to both the UK economy and to the Irish economy. I would really, I mean, if Brexit has to happen, 
I would really like to see that version of Brexit. That's a really interesting perspective I thought that Katrina brings to the discussion. And we'll be posting the full interview with Katrina over on our Patreon page. That's really fascinating and worth checking out. If you're not a supporter yet, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport to sign up. Now, I remember uh, Katrina's point about the potential opportunities um, and things like this coming up a lot when the backstop was first mooted back in 2018. Uh, Lots of people were actually getting, you know, pretty excited by the economic potential of Northern Ireland if that came into play. Uh, Remember, of course, that the backstop is an insurance policy. It's a backup. It's not, you know, supposed to happen. The hope is that the UK will negotiate such a close relationship with EU that it won't be necessary. Um, It's only if Britain chooses to change its rules in ways that would require checks um, that the backstop would have to come into play. And even then, London has the opportunity to suggest workarounds if they can come up with any such solutions. If they think there are ways to avoid checks, this shouldn't be a worry at all, right? Because the backstop would logically never come into force. Exactly. And yeah, a lot of commentators pointed out that economically, it could be a pretty sweet deal for Northern Ireland and kind of, you know, said It was all the more strange in a way that the DUP was rejecting it. And that's kind of reflected in the majority support that the backstop enjoys, according to polls. Essentially, the reason why it's such a good deal is because the EU was prepared to make an exception for Northern Ireland and give it special access uh, just because it's so small. Um, and because of, you know, the particular delicacies at work there. And Northern Ireland would essentially have the ability to trade freely both into Britain and the EU markets. No other region would have that. So essentially, it would be a big draw for companies. You could see it stealing lots of business from London, for example, for companies that, you know, want to continue to operate in, in both markets. And it would actually, it could potentially be a pretty tough rival to the Republic. Now, Naomi, one idea that has been bandied about recently is that the UK might propose something like a backstop light. I've heard it referred to as Theresa May's deal with lipstick on. There's the speculation that Johnson could essentially rebrand the actual backstop with some really cosmetic change and present it as having won a concession. Um, And maybe he could convince people. But it has to be said that certainly... The DUP and the unionists I spoke to in Northern Ireland are extremely wise to that possibility and are very much wary of it and paying attention. So I don't know how easily he could actually get that one through or pass them. But having said that, the DUP don't have it within their gift to give him a majority anymore because he doesn't have one even with them. So they're perhaps not the most important people to convince. Perhaps it could be passed by like a unity parliament of some kind and, you know, drawn together to prevent a no deal. It's important to remember as well that the backstop was a compromise already. So it was negotiated between the EU and the UK and Theresa May agreed to it. The EU does not feel like backtracking. It already gave what it saw as a huge concession in offering this all UK version of the backstop, which basically gave the rest of Britain lots of the um, initial advantages that were only offered to Northern Ireland. It's not easily swayed by non-realistic proposals from the UK. And it makes you think, you know, especially when British negotiators come with ideas like, oh, can we limit this to agriculture or something? It makes you wonder... Are they incompetent? Are they are they simply ignorant still of the facts on the ground and what this requires? Or is this a deliberate just playing for time and they're aiming for no deal? 
Which is it? Right. Uh, that's the big question, I suppose, isn't it? Is there method behind the madness or is this simply just madness? Uh, well, it, it looks like the looks like the latter to me. But listen, I'm going to go ahead, Naomi, and I'm going to ask you the question that every journalist covering Brexit probably detests the most by now. Naomi O'Leary, journalist extraordinaire. What <laughs> is your personal prediction for where we're going to end up on October 31st? And before you answer... I should say that you, I mean, you have earned the right to get this one wrong because basically every other prediction you have made about Brexit on this podcast has systematically come to pass. So don't hold back. Give it to us. Tell us, tell us the future. Oh, great one. (laughs) (laughs) I, I know you really want me to do this, Tim. I would in some circumstances make a prediction, but the problem for me is this is very much within the power of Westminster. So it's up to Westminster to decide amongst themselves about the course that they will follow. And I'm not very good at predicting things to do with Westminster because it's just not my forte. It's not like my, you know, my natural backyard. I have to say that it's really difficult to see how no deal can be avoided at, that, at this stage. The time is just so incredibly short. And it's it in some ways, Boris Johnson's actions to me read as a deliberate attempt to achieve it or at least to recklessly flirt with the idea at a minimum. So he seems to be willing to accept it. There are a few options ahead. One is the UK asking for an extension. Seems pretty unlikely, you know. I mean, he said he would die in a ditch. But then again, we've had a lot of prime ministers lately. Maybe there'll be a new prime minister. Who knows? There's another one where, you know, Johnson uh, caves or or tries to rebrand the old deal as a new deal with some kind of cosmetic change. That's possible. You know, it would probably pass parliament. Um, it would probably gain enough support there to avoid, you know, in, in the name of avoiding no deal. And then there's a no deal possibility. But time is so short. And what I would say is what I've taken away from my reporting in Northern Ireland is that there's already been such profound damage from this whole process. And even if there is a deal now, it will probably involve something that unionists don't like and loyalists don't like. So they'll get that pain anyway. You know, they'll get screwed over by that one way or another. And that's just, that is a big risk and and it's a volatile thing to do at a time when tensions are really high. The options have been reduced to very few good ones. It's very difficult to see how this can be resolved smoothly without some people feeling the pain. Uh, well, you're, you're not giving me enough information to go down to the bookies and put on a serious <laughs> amount of money on this, which is what I was entirely planning to do. But interesting predictions uh, nonetheless, and you heard them here. First listeners, remember them in a few months' time. Uh, so, Naomi, I suppose after all this comes to some kind of conclusion, we will be reconvening on Brexit. Of course, we'll continue to monitor this situation and we'll bring you updates as we can while trying not to bore you with it because, you know, it is everywhere and we appreciate that. Of course, if it kicks off on the ground, we will be there. We will aim to bring you the stories of the people who are really facing the consequences. But for now, that is all from us, folks. And don't forget our live shows. Do check out the tickets for those if you want to come. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Patreon and all the links will be there, of course. Go directly to our website, www.theirishpassport.com. Okay, and we'll be looking forward to seeing lots of you there. Thanks again to our brilliant sponsors, Biddy Murphy. And do also not forget to head on over and take a gander at biddymurphy.com for genuine Irish goods made on the island. Slán for now. Slán. Slán.